Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. Well, just just for a moment to get started, a a thought exercise uh, prompted by some reading that I was doing uh, last evening. Um, But just think, how would you answer the question, um, why, why are we here? Like, like not in church this morning, but generally, bigger picture, why are we here? Why, why a universe? Why anything at all? And I, I was contemplating that last night, was reminded, um, and we you know we've certainly talked about this before in different venues, sermons, Sunday school, etc., but I was reminded in reading last night that before everything or anything was, God existed. And it's basic to Christian theology that God is the only completely independent person. That before anything existed, before the world was created, God was, and he was completely happy. He was completely fine. He didn't need anything. He wasn't bored. He didn't think, you know, what would make me happier would be a universe. Uh, He was completely independent. I think the philosophers would say he was non-contingent, which is, you can try that later at lunch today. Uh, Try that out on, you know, wherever you're ordering food, you know, try out the the doctrine of non-contingency. But, you know, he didn't need anything, which in answering the question, why are we here? Ultimately, the answer is that we are here because God is gracious, Uh, We are here because with absolutely no need for anything, God, out of love and grace, created everything. Uh, That that you and I are here because uh, God, God gave us something that we didn't deserve, which is what grace is, getting something that you don't deserve. And what we got that we didn't deserve was life and existence and love from a heavenly father. And, and that in and of itself is an amazing reality. And if you can take that truth into your heart just for the rest of today, it will change how you live today. And if you can take that truth into tomorrow, it will change Monday as well. But it, it's critical for us to remember uh, that, that we are here because ultimately God is love He creates and we benefit from his love so that when we come to a very practical section like 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 14 and 15, when he calls Christians to behavior, uh, these are not behaviors by which we are earning his love. 
These are not behaviors by which we are impressing him as if he needs to be impressed by us. These are behaviors that are commanded to his people because this is how we grow in becoming more like him. Uh, This is how we grow in becoming more loving as people and more loving as a community of his people in the place in which he has placed us. That the quality of love that God produces in Christian communities is essential for the community and also essential for the world in which the community is placed. That you know, one of, the, one of the compelling witnesses of the first Christians in the first, second, third centuries was how well they loved each other and how radically they loved the world around them. And as we think about being a Christian community in a culture which is increasingly post-Christian, uh, with values which are increasingly post-Christian, uh, that it will be the quality of love that exists within the Christian community, Christians for Christians, and it will be the quality of love that Christians have for the world around them that will really have an amazing witness to uh, the world around us. And you might think, well, I'm, I'm not a very great sharer of the gospel. I'm not a very great evangelist. Uh, it's pretty easy for me to get stumped by follow-up questions. And, you know, I, I'd put myself in that category too. I'm not a great evangelist. But one of the ways that we carry good news out into the world is how we love each other and the world. And I I want that to sink in. Two of NPC's three core values are that we would connect in community and that we would love our city. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15 have much to say about being this kind of community, about being the kind of community uh, that is growing in love for each other and growing in love for our not yet Christian neighbors in our city. And so how we connect with each other in our community includes, but is more than how we feel about each other. And how we love our neighbors includes, but is more than how we feel about our neighbors. There's an active component of love. And that is really where Paul takes us this morning in these verses. Paul's prayer for the church, as we've seen in Thessalonians week after week, is that we would live faithfully until the king returns. And that until the king returns, the Lord would cause us to increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And we saw several weeks ago uh, that the for all includes those who are beyond the church, for those that the church is witnessing to, that, that those that the church is living among, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. And the outcome of this prayer, the so what, is that Christians will have hearts that are blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So if you wanted to bottom line Paul's prayer, his, his prayer is that I, I pray that you would grow in love for each other, that you would grow in love for the world in which you have been planted. And in so doing, you will be increasingly like me, holy, and you'll be increasingly confident in waiting for the Lord's return, that you'll be knowing that you are blameless in his sight. The Lord's coming is certain. It brings certain outcomes, certain resurrection of the Christian dead, certain reunion of the entire church, uh, the Christian's reception of God's not guilty verdict, which is already knowable by faith in Jesus, that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, sadly, 
uh, certain destruction for gospel rejectors. It's the Christian's amazing privilege to live fueled by these realities until the king's return. And so increasing love for each other, Increasing love for the world in which we are witnesses will be growth areas. And we've seen that this is uh, Paul's focal point in verse 9 of chapter 4, which we saw a few weeks ago. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And here comes the growth area. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, we looked at this in depth a couple of weeks ago, but I do want to remind us of, of the three commands that that Paul gives to the church because they become relevant again in our section that aspiring to live quietly is not about settling for mediocrity that that he's not just saying to the church uh quiet hush live quietly uh it's it's actually in its context believing that God loves me is in charge of my life has made me the person that he wants to be is so in control of all things, including my gifts, talents, and abilities and opportunities, that I'm free for agitating and manipulating my own life circumstances, that I can live comfortably as myself in the world in which God has placed me. Aspire to live quietly. Trust that you are who God has made you to be. And he's placed you where you're supposed to be to do the things that he wants you to do. Mind your own affairs. We saw that this is really directed at a social system in the Greek-Roman world where wealthy patrons financed the lives of clients in exchange for social and political support. And so it made the social and political world very complicated and cliquish. And you can understand how this became a problem for the church, that if those kinds of relationships, you know, a Christian patron has Christian clients or, or a non-Christian patron has Christian clients, that, that this person over here is very confused. Whose agenda should he promote? Should he promote the agenda of the person who's funding his lifestyle, her lifestyle, or should he be independent? And Paul's saying, look, in the church, you're going to need to be independent. That the church is not going to be a place where these kinds of cliques are going to be able to work, but instead work towards financial independence, which was countercultural to the Thessalonians, where not working was the goal and actual laborers were looked down on in the Greek world. Paul is informed by the Old Testament view, which is that work has dignity, that God is a creator, God is a worker that working uh, is one way that we bear God's image and that financial independence becomes a component of brotherly love. So growing in love to, to push the thought further into what we looked at last week will require a church to have leaders whose agenda is to shepherd the real people in front of them, to lead from a posture of care, to counsel, correct, direct towards health, and for the church in turn to respect and esteem them highly for their work. All of this is functionally how churches are to grow in love for each other and for the world. Love is still the, the underlying theme, the underlying motivation. So when we come to verses 14 and 15, 
Paul says that as we, as we put these practices to work, that it becomes the entire church's responsibility, not just the leader's responsibility, but the entire church's responsibility to grow in love for each other. And so what we have very practically are, uh, I think, two main ideas. First, how the church is to grow in love for each other. And then secondly, how the church is to grow in love for the world around it. So this is all of our work, Paul says in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers. So he's moved from leader follower to whole congregation. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So admonish the idle. Admonishing the idle includes, but is more than, for lazy Christians to get off the sofa. Idle actually means disruptive or unruly. Uh, and, and we can think through this more precisely, that this was a young, small congregation facing physical and social pressure for their faith. We've talked about that over the weeks. Given the risks of being a Jesus follower, uh, the disruptive and unruly people were not likely those protesting in the street. That's probably not that what they were doing to be unruly, because that would draw negative attention to themselves. So how were they being disruptive? Well, I, I think, following others, that they were disruptive in the way that Paul had told them previously to mind their own business, which means that they were disruptive in terms of not taking the pastoral advice to move towards financial independence, that they were still receiving their handouts from their patrons. What was disruptive was their ongoing privileging of their political, social, and economic commitments ahead of their church family commitments, that they were advocating for the agendas of others in order to keep getting their handouts instead of working jobs to become independent. Paul says that, that this needs admonished, that, 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 that Christians need to keep moving away from alliances which disrupt the fabric of the church community, and they need to be moving towards health within the church community by getting jobs, by going to work, by not being dependent. Admonish the idol. He'll actually come back to this in 2 Thessalonians. If you, you'll see that this is a persistent problem in the Thessalonian church. Um, it's one that he has to keep coming back to. Admonish the idol. What would that mean for us? Well, one thing it would mean for us is, is that, that we understand that, that the church family community is the priority community, that, that our principal allegiance uh, above anything else that calls for our allegiance is within the family of God, that this is our principal area of allegiance. And so it would make sense, secondly, that we're to encourage the faint-hearted. Paul uses the same word encourage in chapter 2 to describe his fatherly approach to these young Christians, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So I think of uh, parents, uh, parents at sporting events, parents at 
uh, band or I don't really know if you could do this at a choir concert. Like it would be weird if you were at your kid's choir concert and you stood up and you started cheering them on. <laughs> Hit that note. <laughs> don't pass out. Don't lock your knees. You know, it would be weird if you did it at a choir concert, but you've been to sporting events where, you know, the, the parents have been cheering their kid on uh, to do great things. I think of when our kids played upward basketball, which is, you know, that basketball where it's impossible to commit a foul because they stop the play. And, you know, I'd be the dad. They're yelling, charging, that's charging, you know, and the three-year-old is looking around. <laughs> They'd be like, take it easy, dad. Take it easy. Your kid's not even out there, not even on the court. Um, didn't even sign up, as a matter of fact. I would just go watch Upward Basket. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Encourage. But it also means to console, to cheer up. The dad with the arm around the daughter who had a great season and goal and yet gave up the winning shot in the playoff game. Console, cheer up. Encourage, comfort. Faint-hearted uh, describes kind of the, the fading motivation to keep moving towards a goal. It was, it's, it's not a, a happy word in the Greek New Testament. It's not a virtue. It's faint-hearted. It's losing the ambition to finish the race. Have you ever been there as a Christian? Have you ever felt your motivation to, to stay in the race fading? The challenges are real. Sin seems like an obstacle uh, that you just can't shake. Uh, the news is bad. What you need is someone to encourage you, to console you, to keep you going, to, to finish the race, to keep telling you that the race is worth finishing, that's worth getting to the end, that it's worth breaking the tape at the end of the race. Paul says that a community that is going to grow in love for each other would be a community that is encouraging the faint-hearted. So what would a church culture be like that was astonishingly, astonishingly committed to cheerleading each other? Think about that. What would NPC be like if the church was astonishingly committed to cheering each other on in the race, to comforting each other when we feel like quitting the race, to consoling each other when life hurts too much. Well, the one thing we'd have to do is we'd have to admit that we feel like quitting the race, that, that, that there'd have to be a place where you say, I just, I'm not running today. I'm not going. Someone would have to be able to say, well, yeah, I, you need to keep going. You can, you can keep going. God's going with you. The race is worth finishing which means that we'd have to redefine winning. We'd have to redefine winning. I mean, I, I, our culture loves winners. Who was, in, who was in the Super Bowl last week? It was Kansas City and that other team, right? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Getting stared at by the Eagles fans. You know, but we have, we have long-term memory for winners, We'd have to redefine winning. That, that we'd have to redefine winning in this way, that, that for some faint-hearted Christians, being cheered on to follow Jesus for the rest of today, being cheered on to keep going tomorrow, to get to worship next week, that, that that's winning. 
that taking the next step in the race is winning. And then we'd have to be open to being consoled. You know, the, the world that Paul wrote into, that first century Greek-Roman world, and we'll see it come back later, it was all about strength. The strong were celebrated, the, the weak were nobodies. And what Paul is actually saying here, and we'll say in the next point, is countercultural. He's saying, I, actually, the faint-hearted, the ones who might get out into the battle and then want to turn around and run away, those are the ones who need encouraged. And, and then we also need to help the weak. And I think that the English word help is, is probably softer than the Greek word that the hearers would have heard and felt because it means to have a strong attachment to, to take a strong interest in. Paul elsewhere uses the same word to describe what elders should do with the gospel. It says that elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word. Hold firm. Cling to. Privilege. Prioritize. Be strongly interested in. Perhaps be consumed by the weak. Countercultural in the Thessalonian world that Paul would say to the church, cling to the weak. Well, what kind of weak? Well, the, the word is very broad. Uh, weak, uh, it would include those suffering, uh, suffering debilitating illnesses. It would include the incapacitated or the limited. It would also include people who reveal weak faith uh, by an amazing capacity to major on the minors. This is how it's used in uh, the Corinthian correspondence. And it would include the morally helpless. In other words, all of us. Because Paul says in Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Who was weak? We were weak. And then Paul, the apostle Paul himself, the, the writer of half the New Testament, the planner of churches all around the Mediterranean, says in 2 Corinthians that Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, now here's, <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing. It, it might sound, if you're listening in from the Thessalonian world, that this is loser logic. Because the, the Christians are getting swacked everywhere. They're, they're getting persecuted. The, the Romans don't like them. The, the people in Judea don't like them. They're ended up in prison. They're, they're losing their jobs. So, of course, made a little spin, little information control. Hey, weakness is actually good. Okay. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul's saying something much deeper. He's actually calling us to remember that the entire message of the gospel is founded on the weakness of God in the cross of Christ. 
which is stronger than the strength and the wisdom of men. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why? For the foolishness of God is what? Wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So if you're a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who's been captivated by the message of the gospel, if, if, if you have been compelled by the fact that the absolutely most astonishingly powerful event in human history, the crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of God, was at one moment in time viewed by everybody who saw it, the absolute weakest event that you could ever imagine. The, the death of the carpenter from Nazareth. Nobody liked him anymore. His friends were running away. Everybody had turned on him. It looked like mission failure, absolute weakness. If your heart has been captivated by the fact that the weak man who died publicly in shame before the city, that the powerless man proved dead by a Roman spear in his side, nevertheless, on the next Sunday, walked out alive that the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men, then you will absolutely cling to the weak. Why? Because you were weak and he saved you. That's the kind of church that grows in love for each other. It redefines winning, clings to the weak. The Romans were so confused by this in the first centuries of, of the Christian church. Like, why are the Christians taking in the abandoned infants. Well, because we're to cling to the weak. Why were the Christians helping the slaves? A lot of the Christians were slaves because we cling to the weak. Why were the Christians go, going to their deaths nonviolently? <laughs> because in our weakness, God's made strong. I think we're going to have areas to grow in this in the years to come. And then, fourthly, as we grow in limitless love for the church, we're to be patient with everyone. Now, I don't mean to quibble with people whose full-time job is to translate the Bible, because um, that is not my full-time job. But the ESV uh, translation that we most often use reads uh, that we are to be patient with them all. And I do want to point out to you that uh, other translations uh, take the Greek language a little bit more literally uh, in this way, you all be patient with everyone. And the reason why I actually prefer that is it, it can seem when you read that verse uh, that there are some readers who are super Christians to which the above instructions don't apply, that there were some Christians who didn't experience faint-heartedness or weakness. But I, I think what Paul is saying is actually the entire Christian community is going to have to be patient with the entire Christian community. That, that patience is a community project for the church. It's a fruit of the Spirit. 
What is the first attribute of Holy Spirit produced love? Those of you who had 1 Corinthians 13 read in your wedding, and you know who you are, you should be able to, because I read it for you, uh, you should be able uh, to say love is patient. Patience is a community project for the church growing in brotherly love. Are there any Christians with whom we should not be patient? Well, we should definitely not be patient with, and I'm not going to insert a name because you're probably here and it's probably your name. We should definitely not be patient with Annika. (laughs) We get to work it out later. (laughs) Of course not. All Christians must be patient with all Christians. The Holy Spirit transforms us at different rates, at different times, sometimes in spurts. Some of you are in massive growth mode. Some of you are near unto dormant. And that might just mean that the growth is happening beneath the surface, kind of like those flowers in my yard that are going to pop up randomly that our predecessors planted. And we can't figure out where they are, but they keep coming back every spring. And they're awesome, but we just don't, we can't predict it. They're growing right now. And then they're going to stop being dormant. And we're going to be happy that they're there. So we're patient with them. We don't rip them out. The challenge of life through which the Holy Spirit must preserve us, the challenges aren't predictable. You might be strong today. And it takes one phone call from a doctor to not be strong tomorrow. Be patient with everyone. I think this is an area for repentance and growth for the Christian church. We can be impatient with each other. So we're to grow in love for the Christian community. We're also to grow in limitless love for everyone. In verse 15, Paul adds detail to how we should grow in love for our neighbors. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to another and to everyone. Now, it's a a weird phrase in English, those repetitions, see that no one repays, pardon me, anyone, seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And I think that we will see that his language is very intentional because he's moving our focus beyond the community, that the anyone and everyone includes those also outside of the church. And the first thing that uh, he teaches is non-retaliation. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Now, if this sounds obvious to you, like, well, that's pretty obvious, Dave. Then the reason that it might sound obvious to you is because you have the advantage of 2,000 years of Christian influence on your life. Because in the first century world, retaliation was the modus of operation. It was actually a, a pretty brutal place. It was kind of like Twitter, (laughs) except worse. In the Greek-Roman first century world, public honor was so deeply valued that loss of honor necessitated revenge. If someone offended you and you did not avenge your honor, you were viewed as weak. And being viewed as weak was the worst thing you could be in Roman culture. 
There actually, there is actually, and the commentators preserve these things. There are actually letters. There's a letter from a mom to her sons telling her sons to not be afraid to avenge themselves. I mean, can you imagine getting that note? Like you're on your way to the fourth grade and you've got your lunchbox. I don't know, if, do they do lunchboxes anymore? You've got your thermal lunch sack and uh, you go and you're taking out your sandwich and your apple and there's a note from mom. And I wonder what mom said today, dear uh, uh, dear Flavius, <laughs> have a good day at school. Don't forget to avenge yourself if you are dishonored. I mean, would you like to, to be a teacher at that recess? I mean, they'd be swacking each other for the whole hour, and then you'd bring them into the classroom and you'd minister first aid. It's, you know, it's pretty brutal. That's the way the world was. And the fact that we would read, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, and we'd read it as kind of obvious, is just because for 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to understand these words and put it into practice. But the further away culture gets from these things, I actually think the more brutal culture is going to be. So if you want to have a witness in culture, start to live into non-retaliation. <laughs> Paul's word to the church, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, was counterintuitive. It was countercultural within a church community whose origin is in God's love and forgiveness. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. <laughs> now, our entire faith is built on God's non-retaliation towards us. But it makes sense in church. What about, what about for unbelievers? Well, Paul doesn't write in verse 15, see that no one repays evil for evil. He does write, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. That anyone is important. It's the same word as all in his prayer that we looked at in chapter 3. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. In other words, he's saying that as you go into the world, as you encounter provocative events from unbelievers, don't retaliate against them either. We think, well, that, that's completely not reasonable. And yet Paul knows that these Thessalonian Christians were experiencing not just mean tweets from their not Christian neighbors. He knows in chapter 2, verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. This is the context in which Paul is advising non-retaliation. The Thessalonians are facing physical and economic and social persecution. Well, what actually should they do? Well, they should practice gracious charity. And by gracious, I don't mean stylish, as in, you know, that, that living room was so graciously appointed. Our living room is so graciously appointed. Dog toys everywhere. We need Kim to come back. It's chaos. I don't mean gracious like that. I mean gracious in the New Testament sense of the word, grace as 
undeserved favor. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. God's grace to us is one of the marvels and treasures of the gospel, is it not? Even when you were dead in your trespasses, God made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace. So you've received grace today. There's actually more grace to come. You've gotten grace today. You're going to get more grace in the future, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. If we can't retaliate, how should we respond? By giving to others what they don't deserve. This word, this word, um, (laughs) I almost got myself in a lot of verbal trouble. Um, This word, but is a strong word. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Always seek to do good to another and everyone. Do good means more than just be nice. In in the, the context, particularly in the in the, the world, do good. Uh, meant something more specific than just being generally kind. Uh, Good works were deeds of charity, such as hospitality to strangers, comfort for the destitute, works calculated to help the poor and afflicted. Okay, so far. But the really challenging observation from the commentators is this. In the Greek environment of which Thessalonica was, good works could be exercised towards family, friends, or the state. So you're going to do good to your family. You're going to do good to your friends. You might do good to the state, you know, and get your name on a brick somewhere. What was really countercultural was doing good to everyone, doing good to those who were trying to do bad to you. Do good to each other and to everyone else, to those inside and outside the church. That, that this is how Christians are to give concrete expression to the love that we're to have for our enemies. It's not just good deeds within the church, but good deeds from within the church to the outside, even to this aggressive and vindictive world. To not retaliate, but to do good to others. Paul's not calling us to an easy thing. Wherever did he get the idea that the culture's value of vengeance should not follow new converts into the church. Where did he come up with this? You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. For if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray those who persecute you so that you might be what? Sons of your father in heaven. That all all Paul is doing is contextualizing to the church in Thessalonica Jesus' instruction to the entire church in the Sermon on the Mount. Non-retaliation, gracious 
generosity. This is how the church grows in love for the community of faith. This is how the church grows in love for the world around. In the history of the church, as I've alluded to above, this is how the church thrived in the first centuries of its existence. And we need to re-own this sense of thriving as we go into an increasingly hostile generation. Grow in love for each other. Grow in love for the world. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.